Hello, you're listening to an SSFD Network podcast from the School of Social and Family Dynamics at Arizona State University. This is In Conversation, hosted by Aubrey Hoffer. Welcome, welcome, everyone. My name is Aubrey Hoffer, and I'm your graduate student host of In Conversation with the School of Social and Family Dynamics. My superb guest today is Dr. Sonia Singyua Xiao. Sonia is an incredible graduate of our doctoral program. She has had rich life experiences as she was born in China and started her college career by studying accounting. She then became a school teacher, which got her interested in socialization and human development. This led her to move to the United States, where she got her master's in family and human development from Syracuse University before getting her doctorate right here at ASU. Presently, she's a postdoctoral scholar here at ASU, and she will start an assistant professorship at NAU this coming fall. Her work is largely focused on pro-social and moral development, intergroup relations, and gender development. I'm so excited to talk to her about all this and more because she's a dear friend. Sonia, thank you so much for joining me. Hey. (laughs) So the podcast starts and ends the same way. I'm going to ask you three kind of rapid fire questions. These introductory ones are just icebreakers to get to know you better on a surface level. And then the ending ones are going to get quick bites of your personal philosophy. How does that sound? Right. <laughs> All right. So my first question for you, Sonia, is would you rather have a sweet or a salty snack? A salty snack. Any kind of That's sweet what snack. I want right now. <laughs> In the morning, I want a salty snack, but I'm going to have uh, oatmeal for breakfast. So I desperately want a salty snack. No specific salty snack in mind. Uh, maybe planting chips. Ooh, those sound really good. Yeah. All right, my second question, Sonia, is would you rather give someone a gift or receive a gift? Um, give a gift. Uh, Are I you really a good like, her? Yeah, because I, uh, I really like doing arts and crafts. So, you know, I enjoy doing that. And um, recently, you know, I generally paint and do stuff like that. But recently I've started to make my earrings or make earrings Ooh. and that I can gift other people. <laughs> and it's inspired by one of um, my mentors, um, Uh, Nancy Eisenberg and she used to or she still does make a lot of earrings and jewelry and then at our uh, lap parties and stuff like that she would give us and so I was just really inspired Um, but yeah it's actually pretty easy once you have the tools and the design the idea that is so fun have you had any cool designs so far or are you just kind of you know going from your heart uh I think they're all pretty and cool but I wouldn't say they're too you know uh special but they're special to me and I actually started doing it when my cousin who's at Penn State came and visited me and it was so funny because we went to you know first Fridays and these things I was just showing her and she would take (laughs) notes on her phone literally just drawing the shapes of the earrings she saw because she's like this is so cute I'm not paying $28 to buy them and then we came back and we're just like trying to make things um, by kind of copying other people's ideas so they're not really original ideas but you know what we ended up coming up was our original hey that's just thrifty thinking so I love that (laughs) so my final question Sonia I know you are super outdoorsy and you love hiking so what would be your dream place to hike dream place to hike um I think it would be the Dolomites in Italy And the reason is just because I saw a friend of mine 
went there recently, um, you know, and he posted a bunch of things on Facebook. It's like, what place is this? Uh, it looked magnificent. So I think that's my dream place. But before then, my dream place just has been a hole in the rock in Papagal Park. I've been to been there a thousand times, but I think it's always my dream place because, you know, I would I would go there every day for the rest of my life and still feel like it's the best experience. I love that. Sonia, you're one of my favorite people to talk to because I just feel like you find so much joy in everything you do. And I just admire that so much. Thank you. Feel the same. No, <laughs> this is the heart. So getting into a little bit of the meat of the podcast, I was hoping that you could talk to me a little bit about your experience as a teacher, because I think it's really great that you had that experience before coming into sort of academia at a higher level. So I'm kind of curious, how do you think that your experience as a school teacher shaped the way that you approach research and that you research in general? Uh, this is a great question and one of the things that I like to talk about because I think, you know, our personal experiences, whatever they might be, really shape our, you know, research agenda sometimes, especially probably for social scientists. And on the other hand, it's just so uh, keeps us grounded of our, you know, ultimate goals. And uh, I taught for two years after, you know, college and was elementary school uh, kids. And uh, what I really enjoyed doing that is that, you know, working with kids of different grades, and it's a little different in China, so that if I was an English teacher, meaning that I would teach the subject English for children of all grades. So I've taught like first grade, second grade, third and fourth, or maybe it's fourth and fifth. So, but I don't teach other subjects. And um, um, it was fun teaching English, you know, being able to inspire kids. But I think during that experience, what I saw a lot was that kids really needed more you know, I guess teachers also needed to to understand more about how there are other aspects of child development that I believe goes beyond doing good on a test, uh, you know, whether they get something right. If they are going through something traumatic in at home, then maybe that's something we should focus on more. And I think, you know, teachers were doing it, but not to the extent that I think were satisfactory, but, you know, there are different standards. So I just remember vividly, like we had a student who probably had ADHD, and I know that the parents were actually, you know, trying to get him, you know, the kind of support he needs. But at the same time, I remember as a teacher, I would when I was more, you know, less knowledgeable of the situation, I would tell the parents about, you know, oh, your kid did this and that, can we figure out a solution? And it was shocking when the parent was like, oh yeah, we're gonna, you know, beat him up right now. And the idea is like, I know as a teacher, you can't, but that's why you contacted us, right? So that we can basically physically punish him for you on your behalf. So I was like, no, that's not what's, you know, that's not what I wanted. I wanted to figure out a solution so that we can actually do it. But several times, you know, it happened multiple times and I realized that's actually what the parents always do. And I don't know, it was kind of horrifying to me um, because I don't think that's what's best for children. Um, and at the same time, I was 22 and I didn't have kids. And these are the kids' parents and they, you know, they love the kid and they, I believe maybe knows what's best for the kid. And the mom was actually a kindergarten like supervisor. So, you know, an educator. So I kind of feel, 
I don't know, unsure about maybe, I don't know anything, but it just doesn't seem right to me that every time I tried to communicate and it ended up being the kid being beaten or whatever it might be like punished physically. Um, so regardless, this is not an isolated or individual event. There's other things like that. Some are gender related, you know, like basically discriminating um, girls and some are, you know, more like physical punishment, things like that. So I think all of those things just made me really not want to care so much about how good they do on an English test and really wanted to extend my care or extend my responsibility as a teacher overall. Uh, which was hard because I was an English teacher. So that was not my job. It's like, can you do your job well? <laughs> so at some point, I kind of feel like, you know what? I think I need to um, do better. And so I think part of the coming here in the US to get the education is to you know get more knowledge or understand things better so that I was hoping that one day, even if I was still 25 or whatever, not having kids, I could actually tell parents, you're wrong and here's why let me tell you as an expert even though i might be younger or not having kids or things like that so i think that was part of the motivation the other part is really just trying to get away from the situation because i wasn't able to change the situation and it was too depressing for me um so yay so that's kind of the story and that's why i'm interested in doing what i do well, I think that your work is incredibly fascinating because, you know, children will do better in school when they're emotionally supported, right? And when they're able to be treated with kindness and empathy, and that will extend to their treatment of others. I think that's really a big part of your research program, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Um, yeah, I think because of probably because of that experience, I really care more, or I think part of the priority in child development is probably should be social emotional, you know, health or social emotional competence. And especially I care about pro-social behavior or treating other people, you know, with kindness, um, helping other people, sharing things with other people. And I see that not just with children, but in how like teachers, you know, deal with children and stuff like that. Um, but with that being said, I also know that not just in the US, but also in China, teachers are really heavily burdened. They're, you know, they're burnt out, they're stressed out, they're, they're underpaid and those things that's common. So I do know that there's, you know, teachers need support as well. But at the same time, I think of pro-social behavior as something or, you know, positive behaviors toward others is something I really care about. And um, I think that will benefit kids in the long run to be, you know, a better person. Right. So a lot of your work is focused on sort of what drives kindness and inclusion amongst really diverse youth. So can you tell me a little bit about what sort of drove that interest? I'd imagine that part of your experience coming to the U.S. and you sort of being the outsider in that situation probably influenced that a lot. Is that right? Yeah, um, that is definitely a big thing, I think, in terms of why I'm interested in that in the US. I mean, especially when I first came over, a lot of the dialogue or just the way that people, what matters to people, right? For example, race, ethnicity issues, they are definitely more prominent here um, than in China. And uh, so 
there are definitely things that I've done that has not been, you know, uh, considerate of other people in terms of their diverse dimensions because I didn't know. Um, but then there's also the feeling of me being an outsider and people didn't understand. So for example, uh, I'm Chinese, right? So I'm Asian, but I think of myself as very different or myself as in myself and my fellow other international students who's, you know, grown up somewhere else for their first 25 years or 20 years versus Asian Americans growing up in the US. Like there's um, a lot of things that I don't understand about the culture. And then I think there are um, things that I don't necessarily share with, um, but that's just in the US. I think even in China, I've always had the feeling of personally of just not being able to fit in as well as a person, uh, even though, you know, gender wise or uh, race ethnicity wise in China, I'm not sort of a minority or a person who's, you know, different from other people, but just my experience overall, because I moved, uh, I emigrated within China when I was little. So like I moved multiple schools during elementary school and during like uh, middle school too. So I was for m multiple times, always the new kid. Um, I remember moving to Shanghai for the first time, having to learn English at, you know, age 12, whereas everyone started learning from grade one. So I was just like terrible. I got like 30 points off of 100 and because I just randomly filled in things. So like there are multiple scenarios in life like that. And even just being an accounting major, uh, trying to go do a psychology thing that's difficult too. A lot of students, though not all of them, um, might have been a psychology major. And I know you're not either, so you get that. But maybe the, it's a little more inclusive here in the sense that I think it's kind of the norm that if you are not like a psych major and you went on for a psych, uh, you know, graduate program, it might not be as an, an anomaly than in China. So yeah, so overall, there's just a bunch of sort of personal experiences in which I always felt like I didn't really fit in or I was the one who's different from other people and trying to be more accepted. Um, so I guess, you know, that's part of the reason why I'm interested in understanding pro-social behavior toward diverse others. But I think in terms of diversity, um, indicators such as gender and race ethnicity are really more relevant, especially in today's situation and in the US. So these are like really, you know, obvious markers for people to be kind or unkind. And there's lots of, you know, research to back up that. Right. I mean, it sounds like kindness is really key when you're thinking about individuals who feel sort of otherized in any way, right? Like you mentioned, I came from a political science background and then entered grad school doing psychology. And while the fields are somewhat related, the cultures are very different. Political science, people on the law school track tend to be very competitive. They really <laughs> don't view like their peers as like collaborators. It's like, this is someone who's going to take my spot in law school. And so then coming into a psych program that inherently I think is much more collaborative was really a little bit shocking for me. And it, it was sort of a difficult adjustment. And the thing that really helped me to adjust, which was so wonderful because of the collaborative nature of psychology was 
others extending kindness to me, including me in activities, including me in conversations. Mm -hmm. But I have a feeling that if I was a person who went from psychology, open and collaborative to the very competitive (laughs) political science environment, that would just be incredibly uh, just shocking and would probably not be um, an easy experience at all. Yeah. And you do so much to cultivate like a more inclusive culture here, even, you know, by doing the podcast, I feel like you give everyone an opportunity, you know, to be engaged and to talk to people. So I was hoping you could tell me a little bit about your lab because you are sort of the founder of this incredible lab called iBay. And one of your projects is called the PB&J project, which I just love the name of it. So I was hoping you could tell me a little bit about sort of the lab generally, how it came about and what are the specifics of sort of the projects in the lab and just how the lab is going. Um, Thanks for uh, asking about the lab, it's actually pretty new, probably started since last semester. Um, So it's been like a semester and a half. It's really motivated by me having gotten the SRCD uh, early career research uh, fund. So that's a good funding opportunity for me to actually do what I've always wanted to do because I did not collect data during my doctoral training. I did so for my thesis, master's thesis, and I was like, oh my gosh, that was so hard. So while I had data during doctoral training, I was like, I don't want to collect data, not on my own, not having a ton of TAs, uh, I mean, RAs. So when I got this early career grant, I was just really excited to start doing the project that I wanted to do, which is PB&J. My amazing RA, uh, Renee came up with the name, uh, Renee, you know, (laughs) came up with the name called um, Pro-Social Behavior in Juveniles because we're studying early adolescence pro-social behavior. And iBay is just more uh, trying to capturing what I do more generally because I want to take this lab further and not just within this one project. Um, But this is our ongoing project on, you know, pro-social behavior. And specifically, we are uh, trying to understand early adolescence. So from 11 to 14 years old, uh, how, what kind of factors are related to their pro-social behavior toward people who are similar and different um, in terms of both gender and race ethnicity. So this is sort of uh, groundbreaking work in the sense of understanding the targets in a more nuanced way, because generally in prior research, when people look at, you know, same and different or in-group and out-group, whatever it might be, it's generally only taking into account one dimension of a person, right? For example, maybe you see a race study or a uh, gender study, and it's generally focused on race specifically, you know, for example, white kids, pro-social behavior toward black kids. Um, But at the same time, we know that in real life, when you look at a person, they might not just be a white person, although that might be salient if it's a stranger, right? But maybe it's their gender, maybe it's how they're dressed, right? Um, So that's sort of a more nuanced aspects of a person when you look at them. But, you know, experimentally or research-wise, it's hard to get like real life people, then you can't really tease apart, which is it, right? Is it because the person looked more attractive, whatever it might be? Um, So here we're trying to expand from one dimension, looking at, for example, only gender or race to two dimensions. And that has been a little challenging, honestly, because just in Qualtrics, there are so many tracks for us to do. If a sign up or if a participant, for example, is an Asian girl, then I'm going to see a 
variety of photos or these tasks, some are asking me about a same gender, same race person, so another Asian girl. Some are going to be uh, for me to answer questions about a scenario about a same gender, different race person. So that means a girl, but instead of Asian, they could be having equal chance to be like black or white or Latinx. But in this case, as you already probably can tell the way that we categorize race or you know have kids look at race is also in a very simplistic way because it's actually far more complex for example latinx is a ethnicity rather than race then you know there are white latinx who might not look latinx so we're trying to be as stereotypical as possible to a to be able to get to these while knowing that we're really simplifying the issue of race too right and we do ask kids to eventually give them, them um, a set of random photos and ask them to be like, if you have to say, would you say like, what gender is this person? What race ethnicity? So the idea is hopefully they were able to tell. Um, but again, so every person is going to see these four different sets in terms of same or different gender and race. And then every participant has a gender or race. So it was just a bunch of different tracks uh, when we're building out. Um, but in terms of the predictors, right? So these are the key outcomes of interest to me. Are they differentially pro-social to these different targets or are they actually not differentiating these kids? We know from prior literature that they should be, but are they in these more nuanced you know, aspects too? Um, but as for the predictors, I, I'm testing or I'm mostly interested in uh, children's identity. And in terms of identity, this part is uh, less so of uh, the Erickson part of the identity, understanding like how much pride or those kind of identifying with the group, but more so um, in terms of um, understanding how similar they feel to different peers and based on sort of social identity theory. And you're familiar with our gender similarity measure. So it's kind of developed or adapted from that. So how similar we feel to a group might be, you know, how we might relate to these. And based on our prior work and gender, we know that uh, even amongst cisgender children, right, uh, cisgender girl doesn't always mean that I feel very similar to girls and not at all similar to boys. We actually see, I think, at least one article, we have like 30% of the kids who, you know, girls might feel very highly similar to both boys and girls. So now we ask these similar questions about race, but then again, there's, you know, more randomizing, whatever happening, because you I don't want to ask, for example, Asian girl, how similar do you feel to white kids? How similar do you feel to black kids? How much do and then it's like, whoa, the participants are going to get overwhelmed, right? So there's also that. We'll just see if the similarity measure works. I'm interested to see, but I also think there might be more similarity than gender. I'm not so sure. So I would be interested to see how similarity might be related to pro-social toward these different aspects and as well as their friendship, because we generally know that friendship or social behavior in general, uh, maybe just friendship, uh, is related to have being more pro-social toward people um, if you have friends with these different uh, individuals. So I'm excited to see what's going to happen. Your work is incredibly fascinating, Sonia. I think it's 
there is so much that we can sort of dissect and take apart here. I think just first for people who might be listening, who might not be familiar at all with this idea of kind of similarity, mm-hmm. I, I think it might be good if we broke down a little bit about just this idea of like gender similarity. So when you talk about gender similarity, you're talking on a continuum of sort of how similar I feel both to my gender, but also how similar I feel to another gender. Can you kind of break down what's the difference there? (laughs) <laughs> that that's a great question. Thank you so much for asking because you know it's easy for me to lose sight of what's known to people. Um, but yeah, it's really I think it's um, the the similarity to same and other gender thing is is something that we've been you know our lab that you're also a part of we've been looking at and it's one of our key measures because we think it really taps into children's sort of gender identity as well as their typicality right um we might expect that you know and as our prior research has shown we asked children questions about both girls and boys or in Aubrey's words same gender and other gender uh and then ask them how similar they are to these kids uh, to these gender groups uh, in terms of like their general, how similar do you feel? And then like, how similar do you look like them? How similar do you act like them? How similar, you know, how much do you like to spend time with them? Things like that, Uh, different aspects. Um, But overall, I think the key point is not just to understand how similar or slash typical we feel of our own gender, right? The idea is that perhaps these are not just the complete opposite of each other, that understanding how we feel about other gender might be important. So like in our research, we find kids who are similar to own to both their own gender and to the other gender um, are actually doing pretty well social emotionally, right? That makes sense because they understand the other gender, they want to spend time with them, they know how to play with them. Um, but the other thing was the and I don't know if I answer your question, so feel free to you know ask more. But I wanted to highlight that seemingly this measure or this way of looking at gender identity or typicality is very binary, right? Because I talk about boys and girls and same and other. But like Aubrey said, it is actually a continuum because you're not choosing one or the other. You get to choose on a range of values, you know, from not at all to very much so for both of them. And the reason that we use boys and girls is not because we view gender as just a simple binary, but more because uh, these are the social categories that are generally used as reference group, right? In the world, we have gender stereotypes and those stereotypes are based on this binary view of gender. And that's why when we ask about, you know, how much are you like girls or how much do you like to spend time, you know, with girls or how much do you look like girls? You wanna start with something that people actually have sort of a stereotype or a general idea about, right? What they are. So I think it's good uh, to note that the seemingly just two category um, measure actually allows us to get into the variations in gender expression or identity. Well, that's what I think is so cool about it because the idea that I might not feel like a girl or I don't feel like I'm similar to other girls rather, that doesn't inherently mean that I feel really similar to boys. And I think it's so fascinating that moving forward, you're also applying this um, 
kind of a I don't know how to describe it, but this just very fascinating continuum to race and ethnicity in a way that I've really, I've never personally read work that examines uh, race, ethnicity sort of identification in that way. And I think that's sort of unfortunate because it's really a, quite a nuanced way of capturing the way one feels similar to a group. Right. Yeah. Um, so I'm I'm also just really interested in seeing that because of the racial or racial ethnic identity measures that I know of, for example, Adriana Umana Taylor's, um, you know, identity measure. I think part of that is more about how to socialize, you know, people's identity, how an individual might feel more close to their or not even close to their own, but really more focusing on their own race, ethnicity, right? But less so on the other side, like how similar do you feel to other race, ethnicities? So I think I, I'm just very curious to see what happens. And I do think there's something going on there because um, I do think the feeling similar, especially in terms of our behavior toward these different people, right? How similar we feel to them, you know, for example, how, how much we, um, we, we share or we like to do activities that are stereotypically more the other group, I think they will be interesting. And I, I actually also think it probably should work with race ethnicity. And part of it is because there is pretty, I think pretty um, clear or known stereotypes about a lot of racial ethnic groups, right? I mean, I don't know all of them, but I remember just watching TV or whatever. And uh, Americans sometimes will be laughing and they're like, oh, wow, this is totally a whatever thing. And I'm like, wait, what is it? And they're like, oh, you don't know this? This is, you know, describing, for example, a white person or a black person. I think there's something about like a bad dancer. I forgot if it's a white person or a black person, but the point is like people would say things and everyone's like, oh, totally. So I think at least for kids who grew up in the U.S. or have, you know, a certain lengths of experience in the U.S., they might know some stereotypes. And so when we ask them, you know, do you act like them? I think there are certain ways we can think of, you know white kids, black kids, Asian kids, and Latinx kids, how do they act? And for me, you know, if I think about Asian kids, I might think they're a little more shy or a little, you know, less social or things like that. So I do think there's clear enough stereotypes for kids to be able to answer this, these questions, right? About how similar, how much do you look like? How much do you act like? Right. It's it's so fascinating to think about. Like my partner is Filipino and Filipinos occupy such a unique space when it comes to race and to race and ethnicity, because I have a feeling that if you were to give sort of your race and ethnicity measure to my boyfriend, for example, he would probably say that he feels very dissimilar to like, quote unquote, Asian Americans. And he would probably say he feels fairly similar to like Latinx youth, right? Because um, that's just um, something that many Filipinos observe is that they sort of feel dissimilar to the way Asian Americans tend to be sort of stereotyped. Um, because really, the way Asian Americans tend to be stereotyped is based on stereotypes of like Chinese, Japanese, Korean stereotypes, whereas, um, you know, 
Asians who don't fall into those three groups tend to sort of feel not very similar. And that really makes them feel sort of hesitant to embrace the idea of being Asian American. I've read a very fascinating book on this recently. So that's why I'm sort of like so into this right now. But I just think that I'm, I think it'll be very cool to see like for youth who might not feel very similar to like the racial ethnic group that they might, you know, be put in, whether then then they feel similar to another racial ethnic group and just kind of trying to parse apart the reasons why that is. It's just, it's very cool. <laughs> it's incredibly complex though. And I can imagine it's going to be an absolute, like, I, I really don't envy the amount of quantitative work that you have to do with this because I'd imagine that it's incredibly complex very quickly. <laughs> very quickly. And what you're saying already, I'm like, oh, that's for next study because we didn't ask like for specific, you know, like if you answer Asian, like tell me more about like what your heritage is and not to mention, you know, multiracial, multiethnic kids. I mean, I don't know if they're, yeah, multiracial, multiethnic. Right now, you know, we have those three sort of monoethnic racial group that are, you know, white, non-Latinx, Black, non-Latinx, and Asian, non-Latinx, but we also have Latinx kids. So in that category, we're just having everyone as long as they're Latinx. So I'm hoping that at, at least within that group, there's going to be some kids that are also multiracial, so that instead of ex excluding them, but yeah, in even in terms of sampling strategy, it has been, you know, quite a challenge because I also recognize, like you talk about Asian, and uh, I actually don't remember um, the researcher's name, but there's someone, I believe either in Colombia or somewhere there, um, doing really impressive, and they're Asian scholar, because I remember um, seeing them at a Chinese speaking conference that happened in Beijing. Um, but they were actually presenting work on, I believe, law school or something like that, but really trying to break down the Asian group, right? Southeast Asian or, you know, different types, different areas and different uh, experiences of just Asian Americans. And, you know, so I do recognize these very simple and <laughs> way of categorizing is difficult, but it's a start, right? Moving away, at least saying, oh, majority of the sample is wide, therefore we don't have statistical power to <laughs> do anything with the other groups. Well, exactly. I mean, all work has to start somewhere. And what I think is so fascinating about your career is that you are really creating incredibly foundational work that is one day going to be really the basis for how I think a lot of people are starting to think about like, you know, sort of group identification and stuff like that, which is just so cool to me. Thank you. Thanks for saying that. And, uh, Right now, just fingers crossed that we can actually get participants because so far we are. <laughs> That's my biggest issue is we've been running into quite some difficulties, um, you know, because we're still in COVID and, you know, it's really hard for people. But we have been um, really seriously challenged in terms of data collection right now, I believe. Um, I still have only 12 pairs of parent and kids. So the ideal that I've been describing to you, having all these kids from different groups that really, um, well, I, I'll just hope, and we, we are keep working hard to try to get, you know, better recruitment strategies, but we will need a decent sample size to be able to do anything. But regardless, this is what I'm going to do. If it doesn't work in this year, it will work next year and it will work the year after because this is the plan. <laughs> 
I love that. So Nate, you are always so optimistic and so wonderful. I know at times you probably don't feel like you are, but I, I really do think you're an incredibly inspirational person. So, you know, as we kind of start to wrap up, I'm sort of wondering, is there anything that you wanted to talk about, any specific papers or projects you wanted to highlight? One thing I'm really curious about with you is so much of your work is about kindness and empathy. And I just think sometimes it is so challenging to maintain kindness and empathy, yet I think you do it with a lot of grace. So I would love to know if you have any tips on how you stay kind. Well, first of all, thank you for the assumption that I stay kind, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, and I, I want to say this, this is a great question. I actually want to say this probably about other work too. I think because I study pro-social behavior or kindness, maybe there is an assumption that she must be or she must be trying. And I agree with the latter. I'm always trying to be more kind, but I actually have to say that it's it's difficult, especially when I'm somewhat an impulsive <laughs> and aggressive person, you know? <laughs> so I think, you know, it could be a little hard because we all have different personality. As you know, some people are more agreeable. Some people are, you know, a little more impulsive. So I do think, um, it's challenging to be kind and to be patient and to understand not everyone works the same way as I do. And I think I was even joking about the don't be a left-wing blogger. And I was, you know, kind of serious because I think that's my most unprosocial moments is when I'm driving. And I see someone being so slow and in the left lane, I'm just kind of like, you know, you need to not be here. And I get, you know, pretty mad. So I don't think that was kind, but I also think they're not being kind. So, you know, I struggle in a lot of these, how do I be kind, but also like, oh my gosh, you are so bad. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So I think I definitely have a a lot of struggle, a a lot of struggles with that. But I would say that maybe if I have one, you know, strategy is just to try to reflect a little more, try to think about it so that it's not always seem like, white and you know black and white like oh this person is clearly whatever the label you might give them um but instead try to think again or try to think from their perspective and just overall recognize when you are not being kind and try to see you know how you can do better because i definitely struggle with things like that and um so yeah i hope i have better answers for you like in five years (laughs) when i'm kind So before we move on to our final sort of deep questions, was there anything you wanted to end on, Sonia? Any projects you wanted to plug or anything else? We'll have all your information in the show notes for people to contact you if they're interested. Um, I would just say that maybe, uh, you know, join our study. (laughs) We have really, really enticing um, uh, incentives for kids too. So hopefully, you know, there will be more signups, but that's my only hope at this point. Perfect. And we will leave information about how to join Sonia's study in the show notes. So if you've been listening and you think that you might be interested in participating, feel free to give it a look and see if you can apply. Thank you. So we're going to move on to one of my favorite parts of the show, which is sort of our deep ending questions. This is an opportunity to just get a little bit of your personal philosophy. So my first question for you, Sonia, is what are you grateful for? Uh, I think I'm most grateful for my health uh, because of this year. And uh, I've had two family members um, 
passing by, passing by, is that the right term? Away. Passing away. She's passing by. <laughs> okay. I've had, I've had two family members passing away, um, with, you know, which are sad. And, uh, I myself actually were having health issues. Some of those, you know, so I think really what I appreciate most is just my health and being able to be healthy, have my family not worry about me and be able to do things. Cause when I was not healthy, I was really not able to do anything, you know? So, and I was a burden to other people. So I just really appreciate and feel grateful for being healthy. You're never a burden, but I completely empathize with your point. It's no fun being sick and it's, we usually are not grateful for our health until we don't have it. So I think that's a wonderful thing to be grateful for. So my second question for you, and this might be contradictory to the first question is what is something that you wish you had more of? More of, I would say time. I would like to have more time. And part of that is because I sleep a lot. I probably sleep for 10 hours a day. And you know, you might know this, like when I entered grad school, I heard that there are three things, sleep, social, and, and like work or, you know, whatever your work. And they're like, you can only have two of them. So I think so far I've been choosing sleep and work and less social because, you know, I, I need a lot of sleep. So I would like more time. Um, but I also know that would they, you know, we all have the same amount of time. So whatever we prioritize, we will always have time for that. So at least that part is taken care of just more time for, you know, social and playing tennis and stuff like that. I think that's a great point. My final question for you, Sonia, is what is one rule you would want everyone to follow? One rule, you know, other than the don't be a left lane blocker thing, which I'm only half joking, is um, it, it's a Chinese saying, uh, which I think uh, is like, don't do, don't like do to others what you want to be done to you and don't do to them what you don't want to be done to you. <laughs> I was an English teacher, but that, that is way more complex, something like that. So I think still try to be a little more considerate of others. Although I understand this, this is still coming from the me point, right? Like do what I want to do to others, do, don't do what I don't want to, but generally try to take other person's perspectives as much as we can. Um, but also understand that we have our own personality. Sometimes there's just no way to always make other people happy and, you know, but try to be considerate. Sonia, I think that was beautiful advice. So I just want to say thank you so much again for coming on. It was so wonderful to talk to you. Everyone, this was my conversation with Dr. Sonia Singyua Xiao. So thank you so much again, and I hope you all have a wonderful day. Thank you. Bye. Thank you so much for having me. If you're interested in contacting today's guest, you can reach Sonia at xxiao, X-X-I-A-O 25 at asu.edu. Here at the School of Social and Family Dynamics, we recognize that the land where we host this podcast at Arizona State University belongs to the Maricopa and Pima peoples. Connect with us and get access to all of our podcasts by visiting the sanfordschool.asu.edu slash podcast, where you will also find links to all of our social media channels.